53. You know, every so many months, we'll see a case mentioned in the news where a person is convicted of a crime. They're either incarcerated or at sometimes, unfortunately, even executed. And then it's proven that they were innocent, that they were sent to prison on a false premise. Sometimes it's for expedience because, hey, the police have to find somebody to find guilty, and this poor person happened to be the person that they found. Sometimes there's a political motivation where someone is set up so that others can demonstrate themselves to be empower over them. There are many different reasons, many different avenues as to how an innocent person can be found guilty. And what we find today is just such a case, but much more extreme. All of us have things that we can look at and say, I've been wrong in this. I've hurt others. Maybe I didn't get caught, but I've gotten caught this time. For Jesus, he was a completely innocent man. There was nothing in Jesus that could be established as wrong because Jesus lived a sinless life. And yet, what do we find? As we come to this text, we find that the religious leaders of Jerusalem decided that it was time to stop Jesus' teaching ministry. They decided that it was time to have people stand and accuse him, even falsely, in order to accomplish an objective, the elimination of Jesus Christ. Jesus faces his accusers here in this text. And what we want to see is, first of all, the injustice of how these accusers came and sought Jesus with a predetermined outcome to the trial before the trial ever started. But we also want to see how Jesus faced the accusers, and how Jesus dealt with the injustice of this situation and continued the work of God. We also want to see that even when man is unjust, the purposes of God can still be counted on, and that's certainly what we find in this instance. Look at the 53rd verse with me, and what you'll find is that the religious leaders of Jerusalem sought to legitimize the murder of Jesus by having, and I'll use the air quotes, a trial. It was a sham trial that was conducted by the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And notice the 53rd verse says this, they took Jesus to the high priest, the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law. They came together, and then in verse 54 we have an insight into something else. What was going on with Peter? We'll see this addressed later in the passage, but notice it says, Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire, and then back to what was going on with Jesus in verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Now what we find in this is the beginnings of a trial. We find that this trial was illegitimate on several counts. Number one, when you have somebody going to trial, you don't look and say, how can this person be proven guilty? 
not because they saw guilt in him, but wanted to manufacture guilt to bring a charge against Jesus that, frankly, just wasn't there. They were concocting a charge, and they were looking for ways that they could take Jesus and accuse him before others and justifiably, in their minds, see to his death, which really constitutes murder. What's fascinating about this trial, though, is this. According to their own rules, they were breaking them in order to bring Jesus to trial. A document called the Mishnah was written some 200 years after this took place, but the Mishnah would go back over policies and procedures that had been a part of the rabbinical circles for over 200 years and well before even the time of Jesus. And they had recorded some principles about trying a person, and here are some of the principles that they broke in order to see Jesus found guilty. Number one, no trial could be held at night. When did they try Jesus? At night. No verdict in a capital case could be reached until the second day. When were they reaching their verdict? As we'll see in this text, the night of. Number three, witnesses were to relate only true first-hand information. As we'll see during the course of this text, these were not witnesses that were bearing truth. They were false witnesses. Again, number four, one could only be convicted of blasphemy for reviling God's name. Blasphemy was not constituted by a person saying things that the religious leaders didn't want to hear, only a statement that would somehow show contempt for the Heavenly Father and revile His name would constitute blasphemy. Number five, no trial could be held in the palace of the high priest. Of course, this was taking place in the palace of the high priest. And then number six, the Old Testament prescribed stoning for a person who was found guilty of these religious rules, not crucifixion. So on several accounts, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were coming into place, hurling accusations, bringing forth an agenda to where Jesus would be found guilty and executed at their hand. That was the goal. That was the agenda. And that's what they were working toward. Something else we find, and one might wonder, why does Mark kind of insert Peter into this trial discourse? And here's why. Concurrent with Jesus being under trial, Peter was facing a trial of his own. What Mark wants us to understand is, while Jesus was giving answer to accusations against him, Peter was on the outside warming himself by a fire, and he was put under a different kind of trial. There, assembled with the servants, servants would say, you were associated with Jesus. While Jesus was standing up for who he is and what he's about, Peter, unfortunately, as we'll see, denied Christ three times. So there's a contrast that we see when we face difficulty, when we face having to stand for the truth. Jesus passes with flying colors, Peter, unfortunately, failed. And you know, Mark was written to Gentile believers who would face persecution 
themselves. And I believe that Mark was putting a contrast between Jesus' way of handling extreme circumstances and Peter's way of handling the potential for extreme circumstances, fearing for his life. And it gives us an example to follow in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, when we come to the 55th verse, this shows us the disposition of these religious leaders. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was a collection of the ruling upper echelon of Jewish religious system. And basically, they were doing a kangaroo court. They decided that they were bringing Jesus in. The verdict was already reached. These were people who were supposed to come in and view all of the facts and make a decision with an open mind. But notice what 55 says. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus. They could not be prosecuting attorney and judge. They were supposed to have people who would come to them with an offense and make a decision. But what they said was, we want this decision, let's go out and find people to support the decision that we judge. I think all of us can see the unfairness in that. How can you judge something that you've already decided? It's impossible. But that's what they were attempting to do. And so they were looking for evidence against Jesus Why? So that they could put him to death. The end game in all of this for the religious leaders of Israel was the death of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it. But they had an annoying little point. They couldn't find any evidence. Now this wasn't something that they were doing spur of the moment. The beginning of the 14th chapter, the the first verse Mark introduced us to this idea even then when he said in verse 1 of chapter 14, Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Now we find the fulfillment of their plot. They would see to Jesus' death. No evidence, no warrant, but in their wickedness, They chose to go against him. When we come to verse 56, we find that several false witnesses lied about him. Look at verse 56, and it says, Many testified falsely about him, but their statements did not agree. Now, once again, a complete breach of what the Scripture calls for in finding the innocence or guilt of someone. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, makes it clear. One witness is not enough. Convict anyone accused of a crime or an offense, and they they may have committed. A matter must be, now notice that word, established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, when witnesses testify, they have to all agree. If you have one witness saying one thing and another witness saying something that is completely contradictory, you can't take those witnesses and say, see, this is against Jesus. They have to match up. The problem that we find in this instance is they didn't match up, and yet that was ignored. Furthermore, 
We get the idea from this text that the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, were actually soliciting false witnesses. It wasn't that false witnesses took it upon themselves to come and accuse Jesus. It was that they were set up by the Sanhedrin to accuse Jesus so that their outcome could be realized. What we find is this, the teachers of the law, those who were to hold the teachings of God before people and stress the importance of following those teachings, broke the law themselves. Exodus 20.16, one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Pretty basic, isn't it? Crystal clear. The Word of God teaches that we are not to bear false testimony. Yet, what do we find? The religious leaders of Jerusalem solicited false teachers, listened to false teachers, perhaps even fed them with accusations. They were supporting false teaching all the way around. Solomon gives this warning in Proverbs 21. It says, the false witness will perish, and whoever listens to him will be destroyed forever. God takes a very strong stand against false witness because of the damage that can be done. So here are these people coming with these accusations, and they're leveling them against the Lord Jesus Christ. And what were they saying? When we look at verse 58, we find that after it said, then some of them stood up and gave this false testimony against him. Here's the false testimony. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days we'll build another not made with human hands. Number one, when we look through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus at no point said he would destroy the temple. Not once. He said others would come and destroy the temple, but he did not say he himself would. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus warned his disciples, and by the way, this was in private, so we don't know whether the religious leaders heard about this through Judas or another avenue, but it says this, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, he didn't say he would tear them down. He said this is what is going to happen in the future. And certainly that was the case in 70 A.D. when Titus came through and did the very thing that Jesus prophesied would be done. The temple was destroyed. But here we find the Sanhedrin making a false accusation against Jesus. Some of the other gospel writers record Jesus saying, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days, but we all know that Jesus was referring to his body because Jesus' death brought Jesus' resurrection. But here are these people in the Sanhedrin making this accusation against him. And then look at the summary statement we find in verse 59. Yet, even then, their testimony did not agree. Those who were making accusation against Jesus, even though they were well coached, didn't have a consistent testimony against Jesus. So how did Jesus deal with this? How did he, knowing that the fix was in, face his accusers? 
When we come to the next part of the passage, we see the strength of Jesus in the face of opposition. And what we're going to see is this. First of all, silence. Jesus would not dignify the accusations of false accusers. He refused to. Verse 60 says this. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. When people bear false witness against you, you can either get down in the mud and start kicking with them, or you can look at the accusation knowing in your heart that it's not true, knowing that God will vindicate you eventually, and you can just not get into the match with them. You know what would have happened had Jesus said, no, what they're saying isn't true? you'd have 15 more false witnesses marched up and saying, yes, it is. The fix was in. So Jesus, recognizing that, gave no response because no response would be received. Secondly, he didn't dignify what they were saying with the response. You know, this is something I've learned as I've aged a little bit. Sometimes silence can communicate volumes. Husbands, we all know that, don't we? (laughs) Right? What's wrong, hon? Uh-oh. I've stepped in it. I'd better watch it. Here it comes. Right? We know that silence can really communicate serious problems, and, and, and it's a powerful way of responding. That's not even what's going on here. Jesus is refusing to engage in an illegitimate trial that is making false accusation against him. And his silence showed his righteousness and his strength and his trust in God. There are times where we have to bite our tongue not to lash out. Not to say to somebody, oh, you're a liar, you're telling falsehoods, you know. It's really hard not to get engaged and and emotionally engaged with them, but sometimes silence is the right approach. And that's what Jesus demonstrated here. His silence spoke volumes. All of the accusers were making these accusations against him, and here is the high priest making an accusation as well. And you know what is amazing in all of this is this. The accusers were judging the one who would judge them. And Jesus knew that. You see, there will come a time where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This wasn't their time because of the hardness of their heart, because of their choice to reject. In a way, Jesus refusing to answer and to enter into a debate with them was merciful because the more they did, the more they're held accountable for. So Jesus' silence was a mercy to them that they might not pile up further offenses against God. But what we must also realize is this. Every word, every deed through this process 
will be held into account by the one who judges all. Revelation 20 says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they have done as recorded in these books. All of the falsehood all that they had done will be brought into account that day. And Jesus knew that. So he waited for the time where God would hold these people accountable. And you know, when someone has wronged us, that same principle applies. Sometimes it is not in our ability or in the best interest of God's glory to do battle. Sometimes it is. You should take a stand. But sometimes when taking that stand won't accomplish it, you leave it to God. Romans chapter 12 talks about vengeance being God's. He will avenge. There are times where a misjustice or injustice is done to us and we have to release that injustice to God and let God deal with it rather than carry it ourselves. Because if we carry it ourselves, we're destroyed. Jesus was leaving this to the Father's plan. More than that, there was the recognition by Jesus that this was a part of the process that would lead to the cross and to our salvation. The purposes of God were being accomplished even though unwilling parties were seeing to it. God's plan prevails. So we need to comfort ourselves with that when we face injustice as well. But then as the text continues, we find that Jesus spoke the truth even when he knew it would mean persecution. Look at the middle of the 61st verse there in Mark 14. And notice it says this. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Now, this was another way of saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Blessed one was something that they would say instead of God because in their superstition they wouldn't use the name God out of reverence. Isn't that amazing? Here they are sticking to their standard, I won't utter the name of God, but they are utterly offending God by having a trial against God's Son Jesus had proven who he is again and again and again by miracles that they couldn't explain, by teaching that they couldn't answer. And yet, here they are accusing him and trying to entrap him. When Jesus answered their question, it's recorded in verse 62. And what we find in Jesus' response is, first of all, again, the statement, I am. And when you look in the Old Testament and you find the story of Moses, when Moses asked God, whom shall I say is sending me? Remember God's response? I am. I am that I am. Now, perhaps Jesus was just answering I am the person that you said I am. 
But perhaps there's a dual message. They are accusing God himself in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. But then Jesus gets even more specific with them. After Jesus answers, I am, he alludes to two Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah and who he is. The first one is this, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. Now that's from Psalm 110, and Psalm 110 says this, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, when you quote a part of a passage, for these biblical students who had studied and studied and studied the Psalms, they're not going to just think about that one excerpt that you give. They're going to give you the full idea of what had been said in the rest of that context. We do that sometimes with songs. Somebody will say the line to a song and what happens, we think of the whole song because of that one line, especially one of those mind stickers that gets in there and you just can't get rid of and somebody says one little phrase from that song and then it gets in your head again and you can't let it go. I chose not to give an example so you people wouldn't go off into those directions. But that's what they're doing here. Jesus is saying to these people, I am the Messiah. And I have authority. Sitting at the right hand of God is talking about authority. So what he's saying to these people is, yes, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And furthermore, you will sit under me in judgment for what you're doing today. That's the message, seated at the right hand of God. And then Jesus also gives an excerpt from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, it says this, In my vision at night, and this is Daniel speaking, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Now notice Jesus uses that title in his response, the son of man. So let's see what the text says about the son of man. He'll be coming with the clouds of heaven. So these are the exact words that Jesus gives in answer to the Sanhedrin in this text. What he's talking about is the fact that, again, he is Messiah with authority. But look at what the rest of the text says about him. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Here it's talking about the authority of the Messiah and its authority far beyond a human being. Daniel was prophesying more than a man in the Messiah. Notice it says that he will be given all of these things over all peoples, nations, and men of every language, and they will worship him. When do we ever find Scripture tell us to worship a man? Never. So again, from the context of this passage, Jesus is talking about the Messiah being more than a man. That he is God. And it says his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Again, what king, who's a human being, lives and dies, has a dominion that lasts forever. 
It says it will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Wow. If they were thinking of all of that passage when Jesus answered, they got Jesus' point. He's more than just a man. But because the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees were familiar with this, taking his point, they had an extreme reaction. When we come to the last part of this passage, we see the scandalous treatment of the Lord by the religious leaders. And we see how they showed their contempt for him and sentenced him to death. Look at verse 63. The high priest tore his clothes. Now, when we look at this, we may not understand the cultural setting of what's going on here. This was a gesture of extreme anger, frustration, indignation. It's a dramatic sign to people that I've had it. This is so beyond the pale that I have to give a dramatic statement of what's going on here. And, and that's exactly what the high priest did. He wanted, perhaps, to make a show of it and demonstrate his indignation. And then he makes an accusation against him. He accuses Jesus of blasphemy. Notice it says, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need to hear any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Now, what is blasphemy? Again, literally, the word means to speak evil of someone. But in pertaining to spiritual things, blasphemy means to speak ill of God. So by Jesus quoting the fact that He is the fulfillment of Scripture, having given evidence after evidence after evidence that He was, what we find here is an extreme reaction by this religious leader, and he wants to see to Jesus' death. Because look at the last part of the 64th verse. They all condemned him as worthy of death. They wanted to see to Jesus' death. Now, here's the problem. The fix is in. The decision that he is worthy of death is in. They have no authority to see to his death. You see, the Roman government was above them. Had they taken Jesus out and stoned him right away, they would have been held accountable by the Romans and they were afraid of that. So isn't it amazing how God works toward the cross to have in place the Roman government over the Jewish ruling class. And in order for Jesus to be executed, normally it would have been by stoning if it were up to the religious class. But because God had these pieces in place, it would be through crucifixion. Jesus would shed his blood on the cross becoming a curse for us, as the Word of God teaches. All of this, a part of God's plan for you and for me to accomplish our salvation. 
Jesus going to the cross. These men had evil intentions, but what they intended for evil, God intended ultimately for our good. And he would overcome their evil with the good that Christ would accomplish for us on the cross. It's a beautiful picture of God's plan unfolding. Yes, terrible, hurtful for the Lord Jesus Christ and his followers. But accomplishing our forgiveness, making us right with God because of the sacrifice that he would endure. Final part of the passage. It says they spit upon him, they struck him, and they mocked him. Let me be quick to say this. As we read this passage and we see the injustice, we see the brutality of the religious leaders in Jerusalem, there are those who have taken this in the past and used it for anti-Semitism. They look at the Jewish people and they say, here are people responsible, they're Christ killers. And a lot of violence and a lot of injustice have been done in the past because of that accusation. And that's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is the corruption that saw to the demise of a righteous man. You could plug any ethnic group in that you wanted to, and it would have gone down the same way because all ethnic groups have their corruption, don't we? When you look back through our history, a lot of corruption goes down, sometimes even in the name of religion. And it's a horrible thing. This isn't an indictment against people of Jewish heritage. It's a discussion about the horror of sin and how man's rejection of God, which has its representatives, by the way, in the Roman government as well, how they did injustice to God himself. But look at what takes place in verse 65. Then some of them began to spit on him. Now, spitting on someone is a gesture meant to demean them. It's an expression of absolute contempt when they spit upon someone. So Jesus endured that. Then it goes on to say, they blindfolded him and struck him with their fists. Now, they had full knowledge that they had to take Jesus to the Roman government. And they also had full knowledge of how the Roman government resolved disputes. The Roman government would resolve a dispute by flogging someone and saying, this flogging's good enough, maybe this will appease them and move on. So they knew that Jesus would be flogged by the Romans, but they wanted to take out their hatred on Jesus Christ before he got there. So they would mock him by blindfolding him and striking him with their fists and saying, prophesy, who hit you? They were there to demean him 
as much as they could, inflicting as much human misery and suffering on him as they possibly could. At any moment, Jesus could have stopped the process, but he endured because of his love for us and because of the terrible nature of our sin that needed to be atoned for. The last part of the passage goes on to say this, and the guards took him and beat him. So Jesus is beaten severely before he even goes to the Romans to be beaten more and crucified. Why does the Bible include such graphic discussion about what Jesus endured? I think a couple of reasons. Number one, it shows his commitment to God's will. That he would subject himself to this to bring about the ultimate purpose of our salvation. When you sin, that sin was paid for at a great price. And that should stop us from a cavalier view of sin, shouldn't it? We shouldn't look at sin and say, well, it's no big deal. Jesus died for that sin. He went through the things that are described in this passage and passages to come to pay for that sin. So it also shows us the awfulness of sin, what Jesus went through to pay for it. But more than that, it shows us the wisdom and the plan of God and how the most wicked of men can't stop the purpose and the plan of God. This side of glory, we look at those things and we say, how can any good come of something like this? Evil's winning. Righteousness seems to be losing. And we get depressed. Listen, you can read the back of the book God wins. His plan is fulfilled. And while it looks like evil prevails for a short time, righteousness will prevail in the end. There are going to be injustices, hurts, afflictions that all of you will face. Recognize that there is a wise and loving God who stands with you to help you through those hurts, those trials, those troubles, and that he's helped you with your greatest trouble of all, sin and separation from God. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, it is completely paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the